the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. So the sober description in verses 8 and 9 lead to a call to repentance in verses 10 through 12. The end has not yet come. There is still time for the rulers to be wise before they are broken with a rod of iron. They need to come to the anointed one and stop the rebellion and submit to the king to serve. Welcome to another edition of Study Verse by Verse with Pastor Leighton Sheely and a continuation of his study in the book of Psalms, the second chapter. We started last Thursday and we'll wrap things up tomorrow. And whatever you may have missed can be found on the website, highlands.us. That's highlands.us. I'm Mike Trout, and this is a ministry of Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. Now, it's understandable that sinners would want to reject God's rule because fundamentally that's what sin is. It's a repudiation of God's rule in favor of one's own. Before the Ten Commandments, there was only one commandment. Don't partake of the fruit of this particular tree in the garden. And it wasn't like Adam and Eve were hungry. They could partake of all of the others. Before the Ten Commandments, there was only one. And what Adam and Eve chose to do was to disregard God's rules and implement their own. But the folly of this surpasses belief. How in the world can human beings think they're going to get rid of God? The Lord doesn't negotiate with rebels. He doesn't change his plan. His king is installed, and that's the end of the matter. After laughing at the foolishness, God speaks to rebuke and terrify the rulers Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have made my decision. It's final. Now, the name Zion is applied to the hill, Mount Moriah, upon which Solomon built the temple. And oftentimes it's extended to include the city in which that temple resides, Jerusalem. And sometimes it's extended even further to describe the whole land of Israel. And it's called holy because it has been set apart, set aside to belong to God. That's what sanctification is. In the Old Testament, if the people in the temple needed a bowl or they needed some utensil, they would send somebody down and to the store, if you will, and they would bring back the bowl or the utensil, and that would be sanctified. It would be set apart. So it wasn't used in common ways anymore. It was set apart for use by God in His temple. And when we are sanctified, that's what it's talking about for us. We have been set aside, set apart, not for mundane, common things, but for God's purposes. Now we're in section 3. And here again, verses 7 through 9, there's a change of speaker. Here the Son speaks, the anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now, the word here, translated decree, means an, a, 
official pronouncement of some kind, such as when Nathan gave David this official pronouncement concerning the successor. And the title son in the Old Testament describes the relationship, a relationship of intimacy and subordination. Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses come to this verse, and they point it out as a suggestion that Jesus was begotten and didn't exist in eternity past, which contradicts what the Scriptures say. That isn't what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about um, the preexistence of Christ. It's talking about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, that they are in unity and the Son is subordinate to the Father. The words, you are my son, this is my beloved son, were spoken of Jesus by the Father twice during his earthly ministry, once at his baptism and then again at the Mount of Transfiguration. At the baptism, a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, God said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. See, there's something very special about Jesus. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now we are called children of God in scripture, but we are children of God by adoption. Only Jesus is begotten. Only Jesus is of the same essence as God the Father. Jesus is God. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God in the flesh. The other part, today I become your father, refers to Jesus' resurrection in Acts 13.33. By God's raising from the dead, he became the firstborn from among the dead. And so in this sense, then, the Son is begotten of the Father to be the second Adam, the firstborn from among the dead. The firstborn of a whole new race of men and women who share in the resurrection life and power of Jesus. Now, some might say, well, Pastor, just a little, like a week before Jesus died and rose again, didn't Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? So wouldn't that make Lazarus the firstborn from among the dead? And the answer to that is Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he went back to being dead again. He is not alive today. Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead to remain alive forever. And because of what Jesus has done, we who follow Jesus will be raised from the dead to remain alive forever. So God confers on him the authority. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So God promises his anointed king universal dominion over all of the nations from one end of the earth to the other. And it's described as a, a, a heritage or an inheritance and in the scripture, that involves the idea of a, of, of a gift of permanent possession. Now, for us in Western civilization, the United States, and so forth, we think of the word inheritance as being related to the death of someone. If someone dies, we get an inheritance. Obviously, God doesn't die, in which case you'd never get the inheritance. It's not what it talks about when it's using that word in the Old Testament. It is a permanent possession that is given to a person by God. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So these two sentences describe how the king of Israel is going to defeat and destroy the rebellious nations. And the second sentence implies a more thorough 
destruction than the first. So there's a sequential thought here. The reason that they are being subdued is because they're in rebellion. But if they continue in rebellion, they will be destroyed utterly. You will subdue them, you will destroy them completely. Now, the rod, an iron rod, is speaking of a scepter, which was indicative of the authority of the king. And this is not a scepter made of wood. This is a scepter made of iron, which is inherently strong. And it speaks of the potter's vessel, a clay pot. And those are inherently fragile. Uh, this last summer, some of us in the church had an opportunity to go to Israel. And we had an opportunity to visit some archaeological sites. And there was one that we visited where... There were bits and pieces, fragments of clay jars that were actually sitting on top of the soil. This is from jars that were made 2,000 years ago. And you could, you could see them. And, and, but after 2,000 years of wind and rain and all kinds of commotion, what do you think are the chances of you finding all of the pieces to one of those shattered clay pots and putting it back together? Pretty remote. The destruction is complete. And that's what it's talking about here. The destruction will be complete for those who continue in rebellion. Then the fourth part. And again, the narrator is now the speaker in verses 10 through 12. And he speaks warnings to those who have not yet bowed before God's Son. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. So the sober description in verses 8 and 9 lead to a call to repentance in verses 10 through 12. The end has not yet come. There is still time for the rulers to be wise before they are broken with a rod of iron. They need to come to the anointed one. And stop the rebellion and submit to the king to serve. That word serve in verse 11 has the idea of not only of a political submission, but also of worship as well. And that's why in some translations it is translated, worship the Lord with reverence, and elsewhere worship the eternal reverently. The word fear in the Old Testament, especially when God is the object, often has the meaning of awe and respect and reverence. To kiss the sun is an expression of homage, such as like kissing the ring or bowing or lowering the, the head. It is, it is a, a, an act of respect, acknowledging, subservient to the other. And so this, this passage, verses 10 through 12, comprises a passage in which the earthly rulers are required to serve God and to acknowledge his appointed king. And then it's got a a phrase, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And it's important that that not be misunderstood to suggest that God has a short temper or a short fuse. God describes himself thus in Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, that is Moses, there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger. God describes himself as being slow to anger. 
In the Old Testament, there are no less than 12 times when God is described as being slow to anger. So what it's saying here is not that God has a short temper, but rather that God's wrath is stored up until an appointed time. And that when that time comes and there has been no repentance, then God's wrath is poured out quickly and finally. When that time comes, any opportunity to get right with God is gone. Mm, Some difficult concepts from the second chapter of the book of Psalms, made plain by Pastor Leighton Sheely. This is a broadcast sponsored in part by Church of the Highlands and called Study Verse by Verse. And Pastor Leighton will come back tomorrow at the same time to wrap things up. As always, to download past programs, simply go to the website for Church of the Highlands at highlands.us. That's highlands.us. During this unusual experience we're all going through, if we can help you, please give the church a call at 650-873-4095. That number is on the website. We'll do our best to meet appropriate needs. I'm Mike Trout. Join us tomorrow as we put a ribbon on this teaching in Psalm 2 and study verse by verse.